Welcome, SaaS people, to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by Sascribe Media. I'm your host, Michael Cullen, and I'm si- excited to be joined today by Brian Balfour. I'm delighted to have you with us, Brian. I'm excited to be here. Great. Thanks, Brian. Uh, so, for those of you who don't know, Brian has started multiple VC-backed companies and grown user bases to millions of daily active users. He is currently VP of Growth at HubSpot, as well as a thought leader who writes regular insightful essays that you can find on coelevate.com. Uh, sharing his knowledge about growth and user acquisition and helping startups to build an effective growth machine. Um, so obviously this is uh, an area that a lot of our readers and listeners are really interested in, Brian, so looking forward to getting some of your thoughts. Um, so Brian, as you know, uh, we are all about about SaaS here, and, and SaaS startups are growing faster than ever before. Uh, a recent statistic highlighted by Thomas Tungus um, shows that publicly traded SaaS companies founded between 2008 and 2014 needed 50% less time to reach 50 million in, in revenue than their counterparts founded you know, between, say, 1998 and 2005. So what do you think is it about SaaS companies in particular that allows them to grow so rapidly, the likes of Zenefits and Slack and even your own HubSpot? How can these companies grow so much faster than, than their, their uh, traditional software companies did in the past? Well, I actually don't think it's just SaaS companies. I think it's the ecosystem as a whole. Um, so, uh, so if you look at basically, um, uh, if you look at a bunch of things, right? Like, um, James Clear, ha- or sorry, not James Clear, um, James Courier, uh, two very close names, uh, basically, um, uh, he has this amazing chart that basically shows that, uh, since, you know, they're really the start of the internet as time has gone on, basically, um, more and more acquisition channels have emerged. And, uh, uh, over time, as well as the cycle time between those new acquisition channels launching and, uh, their peak effectiveness and then, then decreasing in effectiveness is, uh, is shortening. Uh, and so you've got sort of, uh, ex- and because of these platforms, because more of these platforms and the more explosive these platforms are, whether you're talking about Facebook or you know, Twitter or the explosion of content marketing or whatever, or whatever it is, all these things are just, uh, they basically add their, their accelerants. And, uh, and so you see consumer companies going from, you know, zero to a million users in, in a fraction of the time. You see SaaS companies going from zero to a million ARR in a fraction of the time. Um, the whole ecosystem is basically accelerating. And, uh, and so, like as a marketer or as a, even an entrepreneur, kind of looking at growing your company, um, you know that should, uh, you know, that should really start to raise a lot of questions around, you know, if things are really accelerating, how do I, how do I like stay ahead of the curve, uh, and and really sort of take advantage of, of like all of these new channels uh, popping up, as well as how do I make sure that um, I'm always kind of at the bleeding edge of more mature channels. Uh, as basically they, they get more crowded and mature. So mm-hmm. I think that's definitely one thing. I think yeah, the second yeah. thing is just um, the ex- for SaaS specifically, um, just way better understanding of SaaS economics um, and subscription economics and how those things uh, work and play out over time. Because, um, you know, as you really sort of learn your uh, economics and understand things like, 
you know, CAC to LTV, mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. basically start to pump more money into the company, uh, lengthen your payback period, uh, which accelerate and, and accelerate growth of the company. Um, and so uh, I think everybody's kind of, you know, the, the, the magic of subscription is no longer uh, is basically no longer a secret. Um, the market is, you know, is used to, uh, is used, is now both consumers and businesses are used to the SaaS model and paying those subscription fees. Uh, and so, um, that has certainly been, uh, that has certainly been a big part of it as well. And I think third and last, last but not least is that, uh, we just had an explosion of technology tools that have made, um, Marketing, customer success, sales, uh, just much more productive. And, uh, sure, sure. and, uh, and so, uh, when you do that, when you increase that acceleration, you basically, uh, um, you know, you basically, uh, uh, you basically accelerate everything else. So I think that's certainly been a part of it as well. Okay, yeah, you know, very interesting. And I think we, we tend to talk then and, uh, about, you know, consumer B2C companies and B2B companies kind of in the same breath now. And, and you know, there, there's a, probably a lot of similarities and we've had a kind of subscription model and, um, be very common, become very common across, across both and, you know, the consumeration, consumerization of, of, uh, enterprise technology has kind of, has come to the fore as well. So, what would you consider the key differences between scaling and growing a B2B company, a B2B software company in particular, as opposed to a B2C business? Uh, well, probably first and foremost, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely the, for the most part, it's the education cycles uh, and who's actually doing the adoption. So in most B2B companies, uh, it's a much more of a considered purchase. It's a longer education cycle. Yeah, and, yeah. uh, and therefore your, your growth and channel mix look very, very different versus a consumer product, which is, uh, it's a much more a shorter consideration cycle. It's much more instantaneous. Uh, and, uh, um, it typically happen, it can happen kind of like in one session versus, mm-hmm. you know, all of these touch points over a long period of time. Um, but, and, and typically in the B2B world, it's, uh, it's not, you know, one individual making the decision. It's one individual leading the decision, but there's a bunch of other, uh, people at play. And, and so, uh, and so that's very different. However, I also say that I think that that's changing. Like if you look, the whole trend of like consumerization of the enterprise mm-hmm. is basically moving B2B companies to act much more like consumer companies where, um, the adoption path into the product is not so much about like holistically adopting it in it's about one individual adopting a piece of it and having it spread within the organization. Now, everybody's favorite example of this is obviously Slack, Slack right? Slack, yeah. It, yeah, you know, yeah. but there's a bunch of other examples too, right? New Relic is a great example, uh, where they basically, they targeted individual engineers that one engineer could take action, deploy that one piece of code, get value out of it, show value out of it. And then they would have basically an inside sales rep call in and try to help them expand that within the organization, right? Mm-hmm. And so once again, a very different path um, than uh, that than what you see in in sort of other cases. And and we sort of see the same thing, right? Like we've got one of our new tools at HubSpot called Sidekick, which is at GetSidekick.com, is really 
targeted at what we call relationship-focused professionals, salespeople, externally-focused marketers, PR folks, recruiters, things of that nature. And um, a lot of the tools in those spaces are really designed for groups or for the company, and we've really designed that for an individual. And what we see is uh, since we've optimized for an individual, we see one person a day. Uh, they sort of make a decision of whether or not they're going to use it. They get really quick time to value out of the product. And then over the course of a month or two months, uh, we can just start to see it naturally spread uh, via word of mouth within sort of the organization. And so I think, you know, back to your original question, what the differences are, I think the lines are very, very quickly blurring between what B2C and what B2B kind of growth looks like. Uh, and And as a result, you see a lot of, you know, B2C sort of methodologies and tactics in terms of a much more quantitative driven approach, a much more experimental approach, a much more technical approach to these marketers start to take shape in the B2B world as well. Okay. Yeah, no, very interesting. And, you know, then I know because we talked about the, the, the channels as well um, and what channels, you know, have become more popular. And there's tons more channels out there now for, for marketers and, uh, and and to drive growth in, in B2C and B2B businesses. But what what do you find? Are, are there particular channels that are most effective in, in the B2B and in the SaaS world? Or does it really depend on, entirely depend really on the on the nature of the business and the nature of the product? Um, so it totally, it, it definitely depends on the nature of the business and the product. However, even given that, there's really sort of limited set proven, uh, you know, a, a very a limited set proven uh, set of things, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, the easiest split to make would be something that uh, would be like more B to C to B, this thing that's closer to the consumer end of the spectrum, like a Slack, like a Dropbox, like an Evernote, like yeah, those yeah. things. In those types of models, what you typically have is basically um, a very low value per user. Uh, uh, and so therefore, uh, what you need to do is market a pretty wide market. And the only way to really economically acquire a large swath of those people is via virality, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, uh, and so and um, you know there's there's some cases like everybody's like, well, what about Dropbox versus Box? You know, same thing, but Box doesn't really have a lot of virality. They've got like they've taken a much more of a sales approach. But I think the big thing that people are missing is that Box actually plays much more up in the enterprise. They're selling, uh, you know, they're selling year long contracts in a lot of cases to much larger or larger organizations, and so on a whole. Their, their average looks much bigger. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum, you have in the middle end of the spectrum, you've got basically um, companies like HubSpot uh, who target, you know, what we call the mid-market, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. companies that are between 11 and 2,000 employees, right? And in that stage, right, uh, there's, a, there's a mixture of things that work. Um, obviously, content marketing and inbound is sort of the big thing. Uh, over the past five years, and uh, and you know over time, um, you know basically content marketing has proven in HubSpot and a couple other cases to get uh, a level of efficiency in the model uh, to acquire these mid-market companies uh, to make a really big business out of. It. Whereas before, right, uh, the the economics in which I was expensive to acquire. Very few people could really get that to work. Um, mm. You know, the other things that t- tend to work 
if you're playing in this in this kind of level of market, is middlemen or partnerships, right? So <laughs> HubSpot does a lot with what we call our VAR program, our value-added reseller program. We work through agencies to sell the platform into clients. Um, and a lot of other companies uh, have who, who are in similar types of markets sort of take the same approach. Zero, the, the SaaS accounting software. Um, you know, Shopify does like a ton of uh, integrations or – uh, even something like uh, a FreshBooks, right? So, mm. so middle group. Mm. And then on the other end of the, the far end of the spectrum, you've got you know um, people selling into uh, much larger companies at much larger values, and you and you would you basically tend to see uh, the thing that takes shape there is it's a much more outbound sale, cold email cold emailing, cold calling, that type of stuff. That stuff's typically mixed in with content and inbound marketing. Um, but but the predominant thing is is sort of that you know really sort of that uh, outbound type of mentality. Now, um, so I mean those are the proven ones, right? And and so really the way to scale, you get really damn good at one of the proven ones because there's very few proven channels that can be massive scales to like scaling channels to your organization, or you basically really take a bet and you figure out. And you're one of those few that figures out one, a new channel, a new emerging channel. It's you got to do one of the two or both, right? Yeah. And uh, um, and basically to play in either one of them, to be really good at a mature channel, or to figure out sort of that next big one, um, you know, you have to have a very much a very sort of experimental uh, frame of mind. Sure. Yeah. And and in terms of then in, in different channels, um, is it is it a case that you know once a channel, you, okay, you go for an innovative channel and then you get some traction on that because it, I suppose it, it's novel and it's new and uh, users haven't maybe gotten onto it and then you know more companies start to replicate that and then it becomes a case that you know the the effectiveness of that channel over time will will reduce and then you need to start looking for new channels. Um, and if if that's the case, then it you know do companies need to constantly innovate in terms of their marketing channels um, and their growth channels, or, or is it a case of find something that really works and just keep hammering it? Um, well, yeah. So like you constantly need to be like experimenting, and so like what I what I typically recommend is you know like the way we built our team internally uh, or my team is basically um, you know if you're a new product and you're starting out, basically what you tend to find is that uh, you spend, you know, 100% of your time is spent on experimentation, right? Because you're figuring things out. You're figuring out what the viable channels are and stuff. And as you figure things out, right, you start to shift that mix of time more towards repeating uh, things that have been proven to be successful. But even at the most mature state, I always recommend basically 70% of your time should be spent on, you know, repeating and scaling things that have proven to work. And 30% of your time, should be spent on experimenting with new things um, because the things that are currently working may not like almost all the times they'll stop working at some point and you need to replace them with like more uh, like more continue like more continue and effective uh, tactics. Now there's some types of channels that have much longer life cycles than others. Um, you know, Facebook, uh, you know, Facebook, for example, man, I think, you know, Facebook has gone through multiple lives. And, uh, and, and the time for each one of those lives has been really, really short. And, uh, and so, uh, but you look at something like, you know, SEO or something, uh, or content marketing, it seems that the life, if you are successful, 
there, the lifetime of that tends to be much longer. Now, we'll see how long that lasts because, you know, that, that ecosystem is basically getting crazy more competitive. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, but, but that's, you know, one thing to consider. But no matter what, uh, no matter what stage you're at, you have to have a minimal level of experimentation if you want to keep growing and sort of stay in the game. Otherwise, you're going to get caught behind the curve. And, and to be honest, it's not just on marketing channels and growth, right? You know, at, at certain mature stages, it's also, you know, with the product, right? So HubSpot has done a very good job of we've got our core marketing, uh, you know, software, but we're planting the seeds for the future, you know, and ex- doing a lot of experiments with new products, uh, and new models and new types of users. Sure. And, sure. uh, um, and so, uh, and so like most companies, most companies die because they basically get too comfortable or, uh, they, they get in this state of just preserving, protecting, you know, the current profit machine and not allocating enough resources towards, you know, planting the seeds towards the future. So. Sure, yeah, and, and I guess that, that uh, that's a function too of the, the level of maturity of the company, and, and that was actually, you know, it kind of brings me to my next question was um, about your, your advice and, uh, you know, your, your advice on growth to a company. How would that differ, say, to a startup that's six months in with initial traction um, to, say, a startup that's 18 months in, has achieved product market fit, and, and is looking to scale their business? You know, what, how would your advice differ between those two stages of maturity? Well, you know, I get this question a lot, and and and, uh, and, and what I've realized over time is that uh, I would say eighty, you know, seventy to eighty percent of my advice is actually pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of things like I'm a, like I'm I'm relentless with focus, right? Like I think focus is uh, lack of focus is one of, is one of the top killers of any startup as well as any later stage company, right? You get defocused, like you just, uh, it just kills everything else. Um, I think the other thing, really good part of focus is being unbelievably good at, uh, uh, at prioritizing. And cause you're never, no matter what stage you're at, like I used to think, you know, in my first company when I was an entrepreneur, there was like, oh, well, man, next year when we get to this point, uh, we won't be this constrained by resources. You know, it'll be just so much better, right? I've learned over time, no matter how big or small you are, you're always constrained by resources. And so you have to get really freaking good at answering the question, what is the highest impact thing I can work on right now, mm-hmm. given my limited resources, whether that's people, time, or money? Um, and third is just like like we've been talking about is having this constant mindset of experimentation, like never getting comfortable, having the grit to really sort of hammer this out and experiment in a very structured and formal way. I think where it differs is basically, um, you know, coming back to one of those questions is what is the most important thing? Um, and so typically when you're like six months in trying to gain initial traction, I think a lot of people have the wrong mindset towards traction. The actual number one important thing that you're trying to to figure out at that point is product market fit. And the number one thing that proves you have market fit, product market fit, is like real customers, real users that are retaining over time, right? Like looking at that retention curve and retaining over time. And so I tend to rephrase the mission, you know, at that point, which is basically um, traction is about how do you generate enough consistent volume to prove out, you know, that retention, giving yourself enough cycles and iterations on the product and uh, to basically uh, prove that you can, 
that, that, you know, some of the users that you're acquiring, you're retaining and they're healthy customers or users uh, over time. It's not about, it's not about like scaling a channel or any one of those things. And then once you figure out that product market fit, um, then you start moving into the stage of like, okay, you know, now I need to really put a formal machine in place of how to continually scale, you know, some of these, you know, viable channels around this audience that we found sort of product market fit with, right? Mm-hmm. And those are two very different missions. Uh, and, and, um, and so, and so that's kind of, I think that's where most of, I think that's like really where most of the differences lies, but I think everything else is the same. So like, and so like as part of that, one difference would be, you know, if, if you think about traction, right, and, and it's just about generating just enough volume to like prove out that product market fit and that retention, yeah, you can think about like all of these, you know, hacks and tactics out there, whether it's like forum posting or playing on Reddit or uh, guest posting or, you know, any one of these things. Sure. Um, but, you know, as soon as you get to that product market fit stage and you look at like really scaling and trying to grow meaningful as a business, you quickly realize that those things just like aren't big enough to be worth your worth your limited time and resources. You have to go after one of the really scalable channels, whether that depending on your company, whether that's sales, content marketing, search, paid acquisition or virality. Right. Like there's yeah. there's just not that many set of things that have massive ceiling rooms to help you grow or you know, if it's not one of those five things, it's something brand new, like the next game changing thing. Um, and so that's the uh, that is probably where some of my some where, where I start to differ on advice. Okay, great, yeah, yeah. And and then um, and speaking of some product market fit retention, so those those big targets, you know, that that all companies, regardless of the stage that they're at, should be, should be looking for. Um, what a, how important are activation rates um, in terms of the activation rates attached to your growth? And, you know, given the importance of retention and customer success, is, is a daily active user essentially the only user that counts in, in growth rate and in, in the metrics? Um, so, th- so the question is how important is activation rate? Mm, yeah. Um, well, it depends, right? Like, I think, I mean, any of these big metrics, whether it's like, Acquisition, activation, retention, you know, referral revenue, they're all important. The the, the question is, is, is what is, what is the most important one for you right now? Like, where is the highest impact area? And so in some cases, some, depending on your product and your acquisition channels and stuff, um, activation is not necessarily the biggest issue. Uh, and it, it might be something in your, else in your model around, uh, retention or your conversion rates around ac- acquisition, or maybe you are trying to go after that B to C to B play and you don't have, you know, the virality. Well, you better work on that, right? So, mm-hmm. so basically what I typically recommend for any of these things is, is like you've got to do like a, you've got to build them like a very basic growth model that takes all of those steps of the funnel into play and kind of drag it out, you know, an Excel spreadsheet out like a year or two years and, you can start playing with the different pieces of the model, the different pieces of the funnel to say, well, like if we focus here for a while and we improved this metric, what would that do to our model over the course of the next year? And and, and when you do that, you can start to really evaluate kind of once again that really important question. What is the highest impact area I, I can focus on right now given limited resources? And sometimes that's activation rate. Sometimes that's retention. Sometimes that's virality, right? Mm-hmm. And to give you an example, like Sidekick, for example, we had, 
when I first came in here a year and a half ago, um, we had an activation rate that was, uh, was abysmal, like just absolutely abysmal. And so we looked at that and we said, well, it doesn't matter if I 10 X the top of the funnel or, or increase virality, as long as we don't, as long as we're activating people at such a low rate, this thing never really starts to take off and never really grows. And so we chose that as our highest impact thing and we massively improved it. And then after that, we looked at, well, now the next biggest area of opportunity is really cranking up top of funnels. So we spent a bunch of time on that. Mm-hmm. Then the problem became a little bit around retention. And so we spent a bunch of time around that and really improved that and, and, you know, so on and so forth. And so these things shift over time depending on, uh, all sorts of factors, but, um, uh, so there, I don't think there is, you know, you know, depending on your model, right, there might be some metrics that are important than others, but, um, you yeah. constantly have to be playing this, this, uh, you know, to some people it feels like a game of whack-a-mole, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. But, but that, but that's the thing is like, if this, this stuff never ends, things are never fully optimized. Things are always changing. You've got to have a really long-term focus on, on, you have to have a long-term focus on it to, to make it through to the end. Yeah, yeah, I know. That, that's interesting. Growth is never done, right? Yeah. <laughs> I can't remember where I read that, but uh, I'm pretty sure it was <laughs> it was one of your own essays. Um, but yeah, so uh, another question then, um, you know, at what point should a, should a startup switch some of their focus from purely user acquisition and customer acquisition to retention and to customer success? Or, you know, does that start from, from first paying customer from day one? So I think retention is the mission from first from from day one. Mm. Uh, and so um, but like I said, like to really figure out that retention, you've got to be acquiring, you know, a consistent amount of consumers or customers. Uh, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so there, it's kind of a balancing act in the in, in the early days. Right. But assuming that you've got, you know, enough customers coming through, uh, then then you should be focusing on you should be focused on retention because without retention, like literally nothing else matters. Right. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh um, you can you can crank that top of the funnel or whatever else you want as as high as you want, but you you will basically uh, uh, you will just drop like a rock at some point, and uh, you might be able to trick and get by for a while, but um, you're just basically prolonging uh, a, a problem in the end. And so, like you look at a lot of these companies that have had meteor 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 uh, meteor level rises, and then just like plummeting to earth right that is the problem it's all the retention is always the problem like you know the latest example that everybody loves to pick on is is home joy uh, and that was their big problem they just like they ignored the retention problem and bit them in the ass uh, before that the best example was viddy like if everybody remembers that one like that and so uh uh, so yeah, so assuming you're, you've got enough people coming in to really focus and prove on retention, you should be, you should be, you know, just freaking hammering on, on figuring out how you, how you make users and users and customers successful. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, then your customer acquisition cost, you know, is lower in, in terms of existing customers as well, right? So, you know, is there a case to be made that you should focus on, um, achieving growth within existing customers and adding users like we use the, the Slack example, um, rather than trying to constantly acquire new customers? Or I suppose it's a balance again, would you say? Yeah. I mean, I think like, 
uh, sort of upgrade and expansion is, I mean, once again, it's partially dependent on the model. Uh, and, uh, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll give you two very different examples, right? Like one example would be, um, a SaaS company that's very focused on, you know, per seats, right? Mm -hmm. Um, expansion revenue in their case is much more important. Uh, just based on sort of like their pricing model and stuff, because most companies will start with a low number of seats and then hopefully if they're successful, will expand into more seats, right? Mm-hmm. You see this very commonly with things like CRMs. Uh, you know, that's, that's a really key sign, uh, key sign of success. But for something like, you know, if you look at HubSpot, like the core of our product, uh, you know, it's like this all in one solution. We kind of sell it to you in this one, nice big package, right? Typically upgrade uh, and expansion revenue doesn't come down the line until a year into the relationship or even longer, right? And so when you're still in the early stage, um, that that expansion revenue doesn't really become super meaningful for the business until you get to a certain base of customers Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a certain baseline uh, of revenue. Uh, and so really the focus should be on just building that base versus the expansion. But if you're in a much more of a, like a per seat land and expand, like land trial and expand model, mm-hmm. then yes, that expansion path is really critical to, to look at in the early days. Great. Okay. Yeah. No, great insight. Um, and I suppose then in terms, in terms of growth in, uh, you know, particularly in VC backed companies, I think there is obviously a huge focus on growth and, and just, gaining as much market share as possible, kind of as quickly as possible. Um, but there are some notable SaaS companies, like Box is probably the classic example, um, who've achieved huge growth but have struggled to achieve profitability then post-IPO, post, post IPO, having invested hugely in, in sales and marketing to drive growth. So do you think there's a stage in, in the life cycle of a startup where growth isn't the number one objective and you know a company needs to scale back their sales and marketing efforts somewhat and, and settle for slower growth? Um, yeah. So like, I mean, when I think about growth, I think growth, uh, as like a very holistic thing, right? It's not just about, um, it, it's not just about acquisition. It's not just about revenue. It's about the full funnel, right? Acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, referral, right? And, mm. and so there are certainly cases where, uh, you know, you end up with really big holes in certain parts of the funnel. So you need to pull back in other pieces of the funnel, right? So the most common example is if you've got a hole on retention, right? Uh, then you should probably pull back on top of funnel efforts until you sort of fix and make some progress on sort of that retention. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's absolute, but, but you're still in the grand scheme of things working on growth, right? Like you're figuring out how to grow in a more sustainable way. Cause if you increase that retention, you will eventually grow. Just like you might not see the output of that for a longer period of time. Um, but, uh, but you're essentially still, uh, um, you're, you're certainly essentially, uh, still working on growth. It's, it's once again, it's like all about resource allocation, right? Like, like, you know, basically, uh, if you're nailing certain pieces, uh, of the funnel and those things are humming, right? Um, but there's other holes elsewhere that are going to be huge blockades for you. Obviously, you need to shift some resources to figuring out those holes if you want to, you know, keep, keep kind of the growth going. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, yeah, that would be very interesting. Um, just just one last question for you, Brian. Um, you know, uh, well, I was interested to get your take on the valuations that SaaS companies have been achieving in the last couple of years. So, you know, it's it's gone from a a kind of a enterprise value to revenue ratio of maybe three to five x, um, say five years ago to you know maybe twelve to twenty x, and companies like Zenefit's getting like fifty x valuations. <laughs> um, on, on revenue, um, you know, what, what's your take on that? Are, are they overvalued, or is that just a, you know, is it a function of of the the huge market that's out there and the growth potential that's out there, and investors seeing that? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some are are. I mean, it's hard to talk about this broadly because every customer has like a different set of economics, right? Sure, uh, sure. And so I'm sure there's certainly some that are overvalued, but I think like on the whole. Um, I would say like maybe maybe slightly overvalued, but not as much as people think, right? I think the markets have certainly basically weighted uh, and rewarded growth over profitability, right? And uh, uh, I mean, given higher multiples depending on sort of that growth rate. Um, but uh, but at the same time, like I think a lot of this stuff is very sustainable in very big markets, right? Like uh, um, you know these. These SaaS software solutions are uh, are really kind of is just like um, every company will be ran pretty ninety five percent of companies will just be ran in the cloud at some point and and you'd be surprised at how little penetration these you know these big companies still have in these huge markets right I think I I don't quote me on this but um, there was some piece of research that uh, that. You know, so like, you know, uh, HubSpot's a, a billion and a half market cap company. There's also Marketo. There's also other other companies in there. And some research analyst report came out, you know, at some point earlier in the year saying that uh, like less than 10 percent of B2B companies had marketing automa- had a marketing automation solution. <laughs> Just think about that. Right. Like <laughs> think about like how like these companies Right. And less than 10 percent. And you got to ask yourself, do you believe that most companies in the future will have some form of online marketing automation solution? And I would probably say yes. Right. Uh, so um, so I do think there's still massive uh, untapped you know, potential in these markets. It's just it's not necessarily so obvious to us who live in sort of the tech bubble where. Where like every company you're typically exposed to, yeah, has all of these things already installed, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the real world is much bigger than that, uh, <laughs> and most companies are actually not tech software companies, right? So, uh, yeah. um, and so I think that's it's just really easy. It's really easy to forget when you know we're when everybody's so heads down in, in sort of the tech and startup world. Sure, no, and I think that's uh, probably a, a great point to finish on is that you know the the huge potential that that still exists out there, and like you said, we we kind of have to take our our heads out of the sand sometimes and look around and see, okay, there's a there's a whole world of companies out there and potential customers out there that that we haven't reached yet, and you know that kind of uh, it's an exciting prospect for anybody working in in the SaaS industry. Um, yeah. yeah, so listen, that that's absolutely great, um, Brian. Thanks. A million for your time um, and we look forward to catching up with you again. All right, thank you.